What's up, everybody? It's Tanner Hoops. Glad to have you along for another week of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP online with our app. We've got plenty to go over per usual over the course of the next hour. We'll focus on some basketball, some hockey. Of course, we're going through championship series in both. But the majority of the day, we're going to spend talking about baseball. Michigan is on to Omaha for the first time since 1984. And I'll tell you which jersey number won the weekend. We'll round up the rest of the college baseball landscape, tickets to Omaha being punched. Plus, we're going to get Charlie Bramer in here, and he's going to give us a breakdown of both the Brewer and Tiger drafts. A few weeks ago, he did a farm report. We checked the Brewer farm system. We're going to do the same thing for the Tigers and what minor leaguers you need to be watching for. We're going to get to all that more over the course of the next hour, but I want to start with something that happened yesterday on the West Coast. I don't need to tell you how big of a rivalry the Dodgers and Giants are. Yesterday, Max Muncy homered off Madison Bumgarner, and they got to chirping a little bit as Muncy was rounding the bases. I've got some audio for you. I'm going to let Max tell you in his own words how things went down. Well, he, uh, you know, I hit the ball, and then he yelled at me. He said, don't watch the ball. You run. Um, and I just responded back, uh, you know, if you, want, if you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. <laughs> it's not a full 10. I wouldn't give him a full 10 on his retort. I think he could have tweaked it a little bit, made it a little better. Something like, you don't want me to watch it, then don't leave it over the heart of the plate. But it was a big moment right in the heat of it. It's understandable. Bumgarner was asked about the situation after the game. Here's what he had to say. You know, the more, can't even say it with a straight face. I was going to say the more I think about it, you got to just let the kids play. That's what, that's what everybody's saying, but I can't. <laughs> what did he do? Is just a long stare at the home run? Or? Oh, he just struck a pose and walked further than I liked. That's fine, yeah. If you want to do that, do it, but I'm going to do what I want to do. It's funny, you're laughing about it a little bit. Are you softening at all towards that kind of stuff? I uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, I think that the game is changing a little bit in terms of what is... Oh, it is, for sure. It is. You yeah. just, not for you, though. They want to let everybody be themselves and let me be myself. That's me, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd just assume fight and walk, so... Just do your thing. I'll do mine. Here's the thing. I think it was handled well by everybody involved. I think all parties came away from this looking good. Mad Bum is a professional. He's a World Series champion. No pitcher wants to feel shown up. And whether that was Muncy's intention or not, Mad Bum did perceive that Muncy was trying to show him up. The other thing that I really like about this situation, the home run occurred in the first inning. Muncy still had two more at-bats in the game. And there wasn't any retaliation from Mad Bum. There was no chin music. He wasn't throwing a fastball at him upwards of 90 miles an hour. And I think that's why we can all come away from this situation feeling good. It's a little bit of drama, some social media content. It's funny. Even Mad Bum laughing about it afterwards. Nobody got hurt. Nobody tried to bean anybody. I think that's why we can come away from this with a few laughs and no hard feelings. The other top story regarding Major League Baseball yesterday was really heartbreaking. came out of the Dominican Republic where David Ortiz was shot outside a nightclub. The shooting appeared to be random, a senseless act of violence. The shooter is in custody. Ortiz was taken to the hospital. He went through surgery well into the night. His gallbladder was removed, tried to stop bleeding in his liver and his lower intestine. He is still in the ICU. His press secretary, Leo Lopez, says he will remain there for the next 24 hours. But he is in stable condition, ESPN has learned. Right now, there is no known motive between the shooter and Ortiz. Even if they knew each other, who would try to hurt Big Poppy? He's one of those all-around good guys that you're rarely going to find somebody who has a bad word to say about him. It's been a long 20-something hours for the Ortiz family. Our thoughts and prayers not only with David, but with them as well. Time to transition to hockey. Game 6, the NHL Stanley Cup Final last night. Boston dominates a 5-1 win, and the series goes back to Boston for a winner-take-all Game 7 on Wednesday. Tell you what, 10 minutes into that game, St. Louis looked like they were going to do it. For the first 10 minutes or so, St. Louis was the better team. Tuka Rass simply denied anything St. Louis threw at him. He had 28 saves last night. 12 of them came on the man advantage. When Boston was down a man, when they were shorthanded, St. Louis on the power play, they got off 12 shots. Rass saved all of them. Then Boston got their first power play late in the first period. It was actually a five-on-three. They cash in. 
Boston's just too good on the man advantage. That was the deciding factor in Game 3. It led to being the deciding factor last night. St. Louis just never got their legs back after going down 1-0. Boston made it a 3-0 lead before St. Louis got on the board. A weird goal. They had to review it and they did see that Ryan O'Reilly's shot crossed the goal line. But Boston would go on to add two more. So we are playing a winner-take-all Game 7. Here's an amazing stat. This one might be stat of the day. Out of all the championships Boston has won, all the big games they've been a part of, this will be the first time since June 7, 1984, that the city of Boston hosts a winner-take-all Game 7 to decide the championship of any sport. First time since 1984, June of 84, that the city of Boston hosts a winner-take-all Game 7 to decide the championship, meaning in a final series. That's unbelievable with all the titles that have gone through Boston lately. I would have had a great stat of the day. I was excited to share with you had St. Louis won. Last night, St. Louis had the chance to become just the third NHL Stanley Cup champion ever to end every playoff series on home ice. The only other teams to ever do it, the 1988 Edmonton Oilers and the 07 Anaheim Ducks. So now it's on to Boston for Game 7. The biggest key for St. Louis will just be staying out of the box. You trust O'Reilly's going to do his thing. Tarasenko will do his. Schwartz has got to be better. Haven't heard much from him since the Western Finals. Very simply, if St. Louis can quit being their own worst enemy and stay out of the penalty box, they can win. I would pick them to win. But their inability to stay out of the box scares me. As good as Boston's power play is right now, I can't see any other way. To me, St. Louis's ability to stay out of the penalty box is going to be what determines the outcome Wednesday night. Here's Bruins head coach Bruce Casty on what it means to get home ice for Game 7. I think the whole hockey world loves a Game 7, so it should be a great night in Boston and may the best team win. I like that Bruce Casty audio because who doesn't love a Game 7? You can be honest, as much as you don't like the city of Boston or their teams, you love Game 7. And Wednesday night is going to be a whole lot of fun because we're going to see one game decide a championship. You saw the chippiness at the end of last night's game, Bortuzzo with the stick to the head. Can guys keep that under wraps in Game 7 knowing they have to be at their best? There is no tomorrow. For the record, I don't have anything against Boston teams. I know I've said it before. It's an old mantra. We don't want Boston to win another title. I don't have anything against Boston or their teams. Can their fans be... A bit too much sometimes, yeah. But these things are going to level out. The city's going to go through a dry spell at some point. I would be enjoying I'd probably be obnoxious if I were one of their fans. Every city will go through dry spells, so Boston, enjoy this one while you can. How about the other side? Let's get the Blues reaction from last night's Game 6 loss. Listen, if you told me four months ago we were going to be in the finals of Game 7, I think I'd take it. <laughs> We've been a good road team. We've won twice up there in this series, so we're, we're a confident group. As they should be. Craig Berube's group should be extremely confident going into Wednesday night's Game 7. They have been so good, unexplainably good, on the road in these playoffs. Their backs against the wall seems to bring out their best hockey. I tell you what, a couple of games, I'm thinking specifically Games 3 and 6, that Boston hasn't so much as won, but St. Louis was their own worst enemy. And don't get me wrong, Boston took advantage of St. Louis' mistakes. Their power play is excellent. They earned it. But if St. Louis doesn't give them those man advantages, it could be a whole new series. Series could be over by now. St. Louis has outplayed Boston 5-on-5. They have to stay out of the box. St. Louis is trying to become the first team to win a Game 7 in the Stanley Cup Final on the road since 2011, when the Boston Bruins did so, they traveled to British Columbia that year and they knocked off the Vancouver Canucks. Now, they're at risk of being on the wrong side of that stat. So Game 7 Wednesday night to decide who takes the cup. Don't get me wrong, I think Boston's a phenomenal team. And they very well could end up being Stanley Cup champs on Wednesday. But I tell you what, I think there's a lot more riding on how St. Louis plays than there is on Boston. St. Louis has the intangibles. They're a confident group. There's a lot of emotion on that team. It could be chippiness like we saw at the end of last night's game, or it could just be sheer willpower. And no matter what your feelings are toward either team in this series, 
How cool would it be to see a team who was dead last on January 3rd fire their coach, bench their goalie, turn around and win the championship? Kings of the whole league. This is unprecedented, something that's never been done before really across all four major sports in North America. St. Louis has a chance to make that dream a reality on Wednesday. Speaking of finals, a reminder, we'll have Game 5 of the NBA Finals this evening right here on ESPN-UP. Tip-off is set for 9 as Kevin Durant makes his return. Golden State with their backs against the wall. Let's take our first time out. When we come back, Charlie Bramer is going to join me. We are going to break down the Tigers minor league system. We're taking you down on the farm next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. I'm joined by Charlie Bramer. Generally, he brings us the Wisconsin sports update. A few weeks ago, we did a Brewers Down in the Farm report. Today, we're doing the same thing, breaking down the Tigers. Charlie takes us inside the Detroit farm system and gives us a look at who we can watch for. Charlie, I know it's got to be frustrating for Tiger fans right now. They're taking their lumps. They're getting through these next couple of years. But I tell you what, their farm system is loaded. I'm excited to see a lot of these guys when they come up. And I'm a Twins fan, but I tell you what, there's a lot more to it than Casey Mize. Obviously, he's the prize, former number one overall pick with that devastating splitter. Who are some of the guys Tiger fans can be optimistic about going forward? You know, guys like Matt Manning and Franklin Perez. Um, and then even, you know, outfielder like Daz Cameron. Uh, you know, there are guys that depending upon how they really fare the next couple of months here, are, are going to be making an impact this year um, for the Major League team. Well, I understand the frustration from Tiger fans. They want to be good right now. They want to be competitive again. But they're one of the better teams at bringing guys up through the minors and turning them into Major League talent. Christian Stewart, he's a regular part of this outfield now. He was the Tiger Minor Leaguer of the Year for three straight seasons. Who could be the next guy like that? Who could Tiger fans look forward to in the future? You know, there are guys like Parker Meadows and, like I said, Daz Cameron son of mike cameron um, oh how about that flashes a lot of plus tools um he he uh, he is up uh at triple a right now uh, he he's major league ready from a defensive standpoint um he's everybody's good of his dad from a defensive standpoint um you're looking at you know like lorenzo kane with an even better arm everybody is so from what i hear they're so well how has lorenzo kane not won a gold glove yet I don't think they realize like how subpar his arm really yeah. is. But a guy like Daz Cameron, you know, all these tools, his biggest tool is, is his running ability and his arm. But he, he hit grades out at 55. His power's 50, then run 60. You know, I, I think it's kind of funny, you know, like hit 55, power 50, run 60, arm 55, field 55. But his overall is only 50. Yeah. So, and I, I see that as being, uh, I see him as having a little bit higher ceiling than that. Well, I tell you what, we know that the pitching is the real source of optimism for Tiger fans. Going forward, they're looking forward to getting some of those guys up to the majors and build a rotation like they had circa 2012. Uh, you remember those days, Verlander, Price, Scherzer, that was pretty good. Drew Smiley, I think, might have been part of those clubs, and uh, they are looking forward to getting some of those guys up to the majors. Tell me about some of the other guys outside of Casey Mize. Who could Tiger fans be looking forward to in the minors? I think there's going to be guys making the jump directly from AA hmm. to, to the majors, and, and more than one. The first one that really jumps off uh, jumps out at me is is Matt Manning, only a two one four ERA through his first twelve starts. Um, he's only given up forty six hits in his first seventy one plus innings pitch and has eighty eight strikeouts. Opponents are only hitting uh, one eighty against them. You know, with 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 a sub one WHIP, um, that's just. I mean, those are ridiculous numbers. That that's major league. You're doing that at double A. Those are major league ready numbers. Fastball grades at 65 with with a plus plus curveball and a plus changeup. Um, control at times can be, but with with a six foot six frame, um, he's just you know repeating that delivery, getting the mechanics steady. I, I don't see that really being a problem moving forward. Um, and, and again, you know, they give him an overall of 55. I, I see him. I see him as as a 60 
is a 60 grade player personally. Franklin Perez is a really good guy. Bo Burrows is a guy with a plus plus fastball and a plus changeup. Um, control again is a little bit of a eh, but he his ETA is 2019 sometime in 2019. A guy that I really really like is Kyle Funkhauser. Um, fastball 60 um, plus slider. Um, throws a curveball and a change. You know four pitch pitcher with solid control can throw. All four of his pitches for strikes pretty much any time of the count. And he's another guy you could see jumping directly from double A to the majors. And they only give him an overall grade of 50. I see him as a 55 mm. at least. And um, you can go all the way down the list um, to to guys like Brian Garcia, Brian Garcia and, and Anthony Castro, um, Zach Houston. Already at double A. Um, he was an 11th round pick in 2016. Um, he's 24, you know, so so I think he was taken as a junior. Um, a big right-hander, another big right-hander, 6'5", 260. Hasn't been faring so well. The walks have been killing him. His average against isn't bad, but he's got that plus-plus fastball. And and these guys, you know, like like him in particular, there are guys towards the bottom of their top 30 list where they grade out their overall, you know, they're seeing in the future as they're seen as 40 to 45 grade pitchers, but they all have, you know, like a 60 or better grade pitch. So, yeah, they're grading out at only a 40 or 45, but they have the potential to be a 55 or a 60. It's really not projected. It's still possible. And in most teams, their pitching list, you know, you get down to the bottom 10 of their top 30, and, and you're not seeing that potential there and that's what really strikes me with these tigers uh they have so many guys just one good season could completely turn it around logan shore is another guy Mm. um i mean it it just but yeah brian garcia is 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 one of the guys in particular that his overall they see him as a below average pitcher but he still has a plus plus pitch and i just find that really interesting it reminds me a little bit of joel zamaya remember him yeah, tiger fans certainly. will remember him very certainly. well he didn't last long in the league and i don't know that necessarily meant that he was a below average player it's just how do you sustain throwing 105 miles an hour over the course of a career how many seasons he wasn't there long, but he was memorable because of how fast he could throw his fastball. You know, kind of like a Jordan Hicks, is, you know, mm-hmm. guys that throw really hard, but they're proving in the majors that you have to be able to locate. Remember, and, uh, uh, he was a twin a few years ago, Samuel Deduno. That, that, yes, I yeah. do know that name. Could throw it hard, but he couldn't throw it accurately. Right. Didn't and, last long. Yeah, and, and guys, it doesn't matter if you throw 105. I don't think it would matter if you threw 110 if guys knew that that's all you could throw they can sit on it they they can they just start their swing that much earlier i don't know how they do it but they literally will start swinging before the ball is even out of the pitcher's hand and and can make solid contact and and you know there are just so many guys there's another guy Tariq skubal you know and i don't know i'm butchering these s-k-u-b-a-l i'm butchering these names that's what i'd go with scoobal a big lefty. I appreciate you backing me up on that. Another big lefty pitching at uh, a high at pitching at high eight. He only has a three four win loss, but his ERA is three oh eight, and you know pitched sixty one innings, only giving up forty six hits, only sixteen walks, only three home runs in sixty plus innings. Average is average against is just over two hundred. He's got seventy two Ks in sixty one innings. Fastball sixty, curve fifty five, slider fifty, change up forty five. They only give him forty five on control. I think he's got a little bit better control than that. Just looking at his low walk rate um, and his low whip, uh, you know. And there's a guy, a ninth round pick uh, last year, and and he's already in high A ball, just tearing it up. He's more than ready for double A, if not triple A. I, I'm just so impressed with these guys up and down. You know, he's got that plus plus fastball, and he he, those numbers there. Uh, you know, that'd be a top ten prospect on most teams. Let's, he's only number seventeen for the Tigers. A six three two fifteen lefty, and and Gregory Soto. So mm, many guys, yeah. fastball grade of sixty five with a plus slider, average changeup, and below average control. Th- this just blows my mind here. Um, you know he's pitching for the Mud Hens. He's six one two forty. Uh, you know one of them stockier, uh, 
bulkier guys um really was not doing well um to start the year at high a but they bumped him up to double a anyways and uh he had he only pitched just over 13 innings but he had an era right at two and 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 so they bumped him up to triple a and he has an era over seven so he's getting hit around a little bit at triple a but for the season, ERA 4.85, the stuff is there. Fastball 65, like I said, slider 50, changeup 45, overall rating of only 40. You know, it, that just doesn't really register with me. And I watch video on these guys. I see what they can do. I see their upside. So I just don't really get why their overall ratings are so low. And I think that's why they're really so many of these guys are being overlooked. I see much more potential there than what... Um, the top 30 prospect list is giving them. I should have asked you to do this earlier. For those who may not know, tell them about this scale, how they measure prospects. Well, they're graded on a 2080 scale. It's a 2080 scale. I don't know why they don't just do like a typical 0 to 100. I mean, it would give them more leeway um, to differentiate guys. You know, you see a lot of 70s, and, and, you know, that's like plus, 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 you know, however many pluses you want to throw in there. You don't see a lot of 75. You almost don't see any 80. Vlad Guerrero Jr. had the first 80 hit tool, and I can't remember for how long. Um, to put it into context, Keston here had a, has a 70 hit grade. Um, so, you know, and that was batting near 500 his junior year at UC Irvine. So batting 500 your junior year in college gets you a 70 hit grade. So that that's how hard it is to get that 80 hit tool. Um, and so 20 to 30 is well below average. 40 is below average. 50 is right at average. Um, and and that's that's at the major league level. That's what they project to be at the major league level. And then so obviously 55 just above average, 60, you know, is like we're getting into the plus-plus territory. And so when you say a guy has a 55% uh, 55 rating on his fastball, that's what they project it's going to translate to at the major league level. It's not based on performance right now. Well, well, there is, yeah, performance now and what they're throwing now is uh, is definitely considered. But but yeah, that that's their grade. That that's what they're they will. That's what they um, project as for future tools. Yeah. So so when we're getting guys, you know, on the bottom of the list with a 65 grade fastball, I mean that that's a serious big money pitch. Well, I tell you what, one guy that. He's not a prospect, but he's in the minors right now, and the Tigers really are holding on to hope that he can be something special as Jamer Candelario. They were hoping to turn him into a leadoff hitter at one point to start this season. He's just not performing well enough offensively. Defensively, he's been pretty good. He's one of those left side of the infield guys. I want to believe the potential is there for Candelario. Yeah, and he's flashed at times at the major league level. You know, he's proven that he has the talent. It's just he's just another one of those guys. Consistency is is his bug, and um, he's got to be able to get consistent and put it together. He's got so many tools, so he doesn't even know what to do with them. Well, I tell you what, it's tough to find a place for him right now. You've got guys like Jordy Mercer and Gordon Beckham, guys whose best days are probably behind him yet they're still pretty good. They can still contribute on a daily basis. You bring Josh Harrison over from Pittsburgh. You've got Nico Goodrum that's turned into an everyday player. Excellent defensively, can play some third base. Even Ronnie Rodriguez or Duel Lugo, some of those guys that can play about any spot on the infield. Not on an everyday basis, but they're still good enough utility players. It's just tough trying to find a spot for Candelario right now. Yeah, and, and the Tigers have really... Um, you could see last year in particular at the trade deadline when they were making deals, they were really going all out trying to, inqui- trying to acquire um, middle infield prospects. They're gonna, they have to hit on a few of them. Mm-hmm. Certainly have to hit on a few of them. I know they're going to be hitting on some of these pitchers. Like, I don't think I mentioned Matt Hall yet. His preseason rank was 28th. He's, they bumped him up to 27. He's already pitching AAA. He was a six-round draft pick in 2015. Um, he's not as big, six foot two hundred. His ERA is high right now, but this is a guy, and this is what I'm talking about with the Tigers system. He's their 27th ranked prospect, and his overall is only 40. But he has a plus plus pitch, and and you know having a plus plus out pitch like that, I I don't really understand how their overalls are rated so low when that potential is there. 
you know, I, I guess it's it's much easier to to give a guy a lower rating than than when he starts to show. You can just bump that rating up. You know, like Brett Phillips got to the majors um, and with the Brewers and. His his arm was only graded at seventy or seventy five, and then he had a couple of the hardest outfield throws ever recorded by Statcast. I think he threw over a hundred eight miles per hour um, from center field a couple times, and he said, "What does the guy have to do to get an eighty um, arm grade?" So so they did. They bumped him up to that eighty arm grade. So so I guess it's always easier to bump a guy up, you know, from a forty to a bump him up to a 45 or a 50 once he starts to show that consistency and that and that he really does that he really can take that plus plus pitch and and use it at the next level effectively um so so i guess that's kind of what's going on here but but i just find it so interesting that so many of these tigers pitchers they have at least one if not two plus plus pitches well i tell you what when i look at what the tigers are doing I see a lot of similarities to one of their divisional rivals, the Chicago White Sox. When you look at guys like Soto and Mize, I see similarities to what the White Sox did, bringing up Lucas Giolito, Michael Kopech prior to injury. Do you see some similarities you can draw between those two? There's no doubt. Well, I mean, from a talent standpoint, I guess more than anything, it was, it was really just—it was really a lucky scenario. You know, it plays out that that there's somebody that there's that good of a pitching prospect when you, when you have the first overall pick. But there definitely is. You know, Casey Mize, there's no doubt um, if he stays healthy, you know, guys that throw the splitter as much as he does um, and as hard as he does, that that's a tough pitch on the elbow. But everything grading out at 60 or better, fastball 60, slider 60, splitter 70, control 60, I think control should be 65 if not 70. Um, his overall grade only grades out at 65. I can't believe it's not 70. Um, but because he is just absolutely shutting everyone down. His ERA combined in the minors started out at high A ball this year. Um, his first four starts had a .35 ERA. I've never heard of somebody throwing. You know, I think you could take, you could take Josh Hader right now and put him at high a ball and he's not going to have a 0.35 era through 26 innings just not going to happen someone's going to barrel a ball up and i mean it's just not going to happen so so the fact that you know the strikeout numbers aren't ridiculous but he he puts the ball on the ground and he's not walking guys so so that that's really you know what it comes down to he only has 11 walks in 75 innings average against is only 159 so you know you look at those numbers and and you're like how is this guy's overall not higher than 65 Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. We owe you our first time out. When we come back, we'll break down the draft from the Brewers and Tigers standpoint next in the Sports Pen and ESPN UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN UP and on the ESPN UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN UP. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer, glad to have you along. Here's your Sports Center update. Rafael Nadal won his 12th French Open title yesterday in four sets over Dominic Team. Tony Parker has announced his retirement from professional basketball after 18 seasons. And finally, a Georgia police officer pulled over his girlfriend this weekend. He asked her to step out of her vehicle, and when she did, he got down on one knee and asked her to marry him. How about that? It's a good way to propose. It's memorable. Plus, he didn't have to hire a photographer because the photo, the proposal photo was taken by the police officer's dashboard cam. Yeah, right. And well, what's what's a worse prank? Well, the guy, you know, the videos that was on Tosh, um the guy that uh, you know, was faking in the emergency room. You know, I don't know what he was faking, mm-hmm. but you know, like they were, you know, like trying to restart start giving him CPR and stuff and all of a sudden he whips off the blanket his wife or his girlfriend fiance was a nurse there. And you know, he gets out of the bed, gets on one knee. So it's like, what's what's more shocking to 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 the girl? You know, like what's more of a turn being pulled over? I would have to probably say, thinking that 
he's dying in the emergency room. But, <laughs> you know, there must have been some serious, what the heck is going on here? What do you think you're doing? Like, he was borderline going to be in big trouble later if he did end up following through and writing her a ticket. I could only imagine. Tanner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. Glad to have you along on this Monday afternoon. I tell you what, we've got Charlie here. He does the Wisconsin Sports Report for us on a weekly basis. We're going to take a look at the Tiger and Brewer draft results and what have you. Brewers get the win yesterday. Off day today. Off day for them. The Tigers, the Twins. There's a couple of inner city series, I guess. The Mets and Yankees play. Angels, Dodgers, if you're into that. But we're into the Brewers and the Tigers up here. Brewers, uh, what are they, 9 over 500 now? 10. They got to 10 over 500. They had overtaken the Cubs for most of the last week, um, and now they're tied. Um, The Brewers and Cubs are both 10 games over 500. Brewers have uh, played two more games than the Cubs, lost one and won one. So the Cubs have tiebreaker by way of winning percentage. I I almost exclusively focus Wisconsin sports, uh, but with how, how good the Tigers have been doing, you know, it's always so much fun for me. Um, to to look at younger players and try and project, you know, look at what I see, look what look what uh, we're getting from you know MLB pipeline and stuff, and 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 it's just I couldn't I can't help but get into um, what the Tigers have been able to put together um, as far as you know like what we talked about last segment with their pitching prospects and then now with their draft, but just to hit on some Brewers stuff, I mean what they're doing right now it's really fun because. It's really clear that the team as a whole is not hitting on all cylinders. Um, there's definite holes in that bullpen at times. But we're starting to see guys step up. And, and there are guys like Jeremy Jeffress who quietly now, through 20 games, has a 2.82 ERA. He's got as many strikeouts as innings pitched, and he only has a 1.12 whip. And his velocity is considerably down this year, but the movement is there. So he's still having a lot of success in, in high-leverage situations. And, and yeah, the Brewers have won six of their last seven games. Before this, they, they were able to put together a winning seven of eight. Uh, before yesterday, they were only three and seven or three and eight in uh, potential sweep games. So, uh, you know, game three of a series or whatever. So, so they haven't been doing it. They've won a lot of series. They've won a lot of series two out of three. They've been struggling to win that third game. So it was nice to see them pull that out yesterday, especially against a team like the Tigers or a, a team like the Pirates. And um, I believe now they are 6-1 and one against the Pirates this year. So that's mm. really nice to see. They're, they got off to a great start. You're going to have to imagine they're going to win that season series now. And um, they haven't won a ser- season series from the – Pirates since 2015. How about that? Yeah, so that's 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 really nice to see. Um, reasons for that, you know, obviously we can talk about Christian Yelich all day. MLB leading 24 homers, 53 RBIs. He also leads the National League in steals, 14 steals. I want to throw this out there. This is something I've quietly always kept to myself, thought about myself. I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before. I have always wondered why steals do not factor into OPS. Mm. I have always thought that there should be, I think it should factor into slugging at minimum. There should be something, some way to factor it into OPS. Because, I mean, if a guy hits a single and steals second, I mean, it's like he hit a double almost, right? And and it can put a lot of pressure on opposing teams and it forces a lot of errors. So, obviously, I don't think it should be, held in, in as high regard as a double. Is it just me? Or I, I think there's a case there. I think there's definitely a case to be made there. It's not something I can honestly say I've thought about before. And and I, had, I hadn't until I think about a year ago. And because I was looking at guys in, with very low OPSs, um, guys like, but then guys like Jonathan VR, who a couple years ago stole over 50 bases, mm-hmm. and 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 he him and a guy like Aaron Perez, you know, a pretty average career OPS has a high OPS against lefties, but he steals third base better than just about anybody I've seen in my lifetime. And turning that double into a triple, he can steal third base whether there's nobody out or one out. I mean, he he's so good at that. And and there's been so many times where he's been able to steal third base with less than two outs and then score a run on a sack fly. And I just, 
you know, he obviously gets credit for that stolen base, but there should be more. There, I just feel like there should be more, and and I'm glad you don't seem to think I'm entirely crazy for having that notion. Well, I tell you what, the Brewers, I thought they had a pretty good draft. They hit on the 28th overall pick. They surprised some people by taking the SEC Pitcher of the Year, but tell me what to expect from him. Ethan Small, he seemed like kind of a really safe pick. I was kind of surprised when I looked at his numbers that he wasn't higher in Baseball America's list. Um, his name is Small. He's not really small. He's 6'3", 215. Mm-hmm. Um, he was 9-2 in 16 starts, only a one eight eight ERA. He struck out 160 batters this year. Yep, led the SEC. And, and to be able to do that um, without really having... You know, they say he has a plus changeup. Could be a plus-plus pitch. But to, to be able to do that without any devastating pitches, I love to see that because that is oftentimes things that can translate being major league ready. And he is a guy that projects to be a very quick riser. Um, he has an advanced approach after his Tommy John surgery. Um, his mechanics are very sound. Um, a potential high ceiling player, you know, we're topping top of the rotation guy with like a basement of like a fourth number four starter. So you know, that's like a win-win there. End of the first round, pick pick up a guy like that. They cannot sign him until after Mississippi State is done with the College World Series. They just finished up sweeping Stanford the other day. Um, they await the winner of Auburn in North Carolina. So there's some really good baseball being mm-hmm. played there if anybody wants to get into that. His MLB pipeline grades, fastball 55, curve 50, changeup 55, control 50. Mm-hmm. Overall only 50. I thought his overall could have been a little higher. Um, but you just love to see that across-the-board approach. Mm-hmm. I really see him as a right-handed Zach Davies who who won his seventh game. He's still undefeated for the year. And um, I really see him as a Zach Davies that – that uh and and i think just from what i've seen and what i've heard you know he's sitting 92 94 now but i think he'll be able to sit mid 90s um with a few um mechanical adjustments and and the way he can control that change up and throw it for strikes at any time that that really projects to to major league baseball and the change up is really making a comeback in the majors right now um, that I've I've been seeing that as a great neutralizer. Guys like Zach Davies, guys with arms that aren't quite as devastating, are able to have quite a bit of success. And and then they picked up another left-hander in the second round, pick number 65, Antoine Kelly. Yeah, Wabash. Wabash. Yeah, Valley Junior College. And he's already signed. Um, last year he was a 13th rounder. Um, of the Padres. He bet on himself and it got him about a million extra dollars. Um, he's six foot six. Now this is a guy he could have the highest ceiling. He he's he's really like a high ceiling guy, but the potential is all there. And he's sitting at ninety eight to hundred right now. And they project him though once he beefs up to be a hundred plus consistently from the left side. That's Josh Hader type stuff right there. That's even a little bit more velocity than Josh Hader. And they say he hides the ball well and throws the ball across his body quite a bit. And that sounds a lot like Josh Hader to me. But there are some serious control issues there. His fastball, they grade it as a 70 right now. I see it as a 75. Mm. But then his slider is only a 45, change up 40. They were generous. I felt a little generous and gave him a control grade of 45 because he did walk 31 batters in only 52.2 innings so so that's about double of where you would want that to be it is samuel deduno but just like ethan small he only had the 188 era so so i guess able to keep that era low struck out 112 batters in 52 innings i i think the brewers see him probably as another really really potent lefty option out of the bullpen just with the high strikeout numbers. And he's the type of guy that just go out there, throw as hard as you can for an inning. You know, that I think that's what, a, a lot like Josh Hader. You know, you don't even really need a secondary pitch. The slider doesn't even have to have any break to it. It's more used as a changeup than anything just to throw batters off, off, off kilter. They must be seeing him as, as a reliever. And so then they traded. They had a, a comp balance B pick. They traded that to the Rangers. You're allowed to trade uh, comp picks, 
and that ended up being the 41st pick um, they, that they traded for Alex Claudio. Obviously, Alex Claudio could could turn things around, but right now, that's not seeming like the best deal in the world. Well, I tell you what, the Tigers had a pretty good draft themselves. They got the guy they wanted at number five overall, a guy they've been watching for almost four years now. Riley Green, you know, high school prep player from Florida. He's 18. His hit grade's already 60. Um, so coming out of high school with a with a hit grade that good, you like to see that. It's probably only going to go up. Um, power of 55. He has a lot of raw power. I think... I think the Tigers project that to really go up, you know, to be a 60 to 65 power grade. Um, doesn't run the best, doesn't have the best arm, kind of a below average fielder. Um, grades out as an overall of 55 right now. So you kind of see him, you know, if that bat plays up, um, even if he has to be a first baseman, which is unlikely. I think he'll be able to stick at least in left. But even if he has to play first base, that bat will play. And um, they really see him. He's already 192 pounds at six foot one, but they see him filling out probably at least another 20, 25 pounds. And it's just a matter of how long will it take him to put it all together. It's always fun to see these guys reach the majors as quick as possible. But I think he's going to be a little bit more of a project. But when he does get there, it's going to be a great offensive weapon for the Tigers. And and then they picked up uh, in the second round uh, Nick Quintana. Uh, he was an Arizona wildcat infielder mainly played third base now i found this interesting because he grades out extremely highly defensively but his feeling percentage his freshman year was only 890 Mm. i don't know if i've ever seen i mean that is incredibly low um his junior year last year he got it up to 921 so but his overall feeling percentage for his career was under 900 but yet he grades out as an extremely plus defender with just a cannon, just an absolute cannon. Good enough arm to play shortstop if if he could have the range. Um, in 222 at bats last year, he had 76 hits. So so he gets on base, 462 on base percentage with a 626 slugging, uh, 77 RBIs. I mean, in 56 games, so the guy can hit, and if he's as plus defensively as they say, they give him a, feel, a fielding grade of 60, despite his low fielding percentage. He he's not so much as, as an hit for average guy. He doesn't project to hit for so much average in the majors, but he does project to be a guy that will take his walks and hit for power, which you know, kind of like an Eric Thames type of hitter. So, you know, as long as he can get on base, right? And um, he he projects to have that bat play pretty much anywhere on the infield, even if he has to end up at at first base. And um, just just going down the line, it, it seems to be uh, a trend with with the Tigers. You know, picking up these guys that uh, have holes in their game, but they're they're going to be willing to work with them, and and their bats definitely have a lot of upside. Charlie Bramer in studio with us, giving us the rundown on the Brewers and Tigers 2019 draft. Appreciate it as always, my man. You did a lot of work, put a lot of thought into that. Appreciate you being here as always. With that, we're going to take a timeout. When we come back, the Michigan Wolverines are on to the College World Series for the first time since 1984+. Plus, We'll preview Game 5 of the NBA Finals tonight, next in the Sports Band on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand with our free mobile app. You can get it from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just look up ESPN-UP. You can use that app to hear Game 5 of the NBA Finals this evening. Golden State visiting Toronto. They get their best player back, but their backs are against the wall. A 3-1 series lead for Toronto as they go back north of the border. By the way, Kawhi Leonard dispelled those rumors that came out last week saying he already bought a house in Toronto. Says it didn't happen. I'm inclined to believe him because why would he? Someone offered him a penthouse if he would stay. I tell you what, tonight could be the last night of the NBA season. The Raptors on the brink of their first title ever. What will Kevin Durant be able to bring to the table? His first game since the Western Conference semis. He's coming off a calf strain. I'm not sure if he's going to be at full strength, but he's at the point where you have to play like there's no tomorrow because if you lose, there isn't a tomorrow. A lot of people say Kevin Durant still isn't a legitimate NBA champion. 
because his rings come from joining a 73-win team when he couldn't beat them himself. So a lot of people put an asterisk next to Kevin Durant, especially when it comes to the debate, is he the greatest player in the league? I think we can all agree, if Kevin Durant's return propels the Warriors to an NBA championship this season, it will be his first true unasterisk ring. He would lock up NBA Finals MVP, there'd be no doubt about it. I tell you what, how about this? Does he have a case for being the NBA Finals MVP as it is right now? Realistically, he doesn't, but he's showing how valuable his presence is to a team. They're down 3-1 without him. The fact that he's coming back tonight is the only reason that people think Golden State still has a chance to do this. If you define the award as being the most valuable player to your team, the most valuable asset they can't win without, then yeah, Kevin Durant's probably the finals MVP without playing a finals game. Now, realistically, that won't happen. That's just radio show talk. That's just fun that we can speculate here on ESPN-UP. I tell you what, aside from basketball, baseball's been on my brain heavily lately, and particularly jersey numbers. Which jersey number won the weekend? We're going to get to that in a moment. Craig Kimbrough, signed by the Cubs last week, he asked for jersey number 24. He was asked why. He said, I think it's an athletic number. What constitutes an athletic number? Kimbrough thinks 24 constitutes an athletic number. What numbers are unathletic? If you go in the high 30s, you get up to like 37, 38, 39. I'm not sure about a lot of those. Back before John Carlos Stanton and Adrian Peterson, I would have said 27, 28 were pretty unathletic numbers. Now I think those guys have bucked the trend. About 29 or 19. Once you get to the high end of a lot of the 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s, I think that's where you start to say, yeah, this is probably not that athletic of a number. What about number 80? You're probably thinking of Chris Carter, some of the greats to wear the jersey. How about in baseball? The number 80 in baseball had its day on Saturday. It started off at Comerica Park, started with the Tigers. Ryan Eads, a relief pitcher for the Minnesota Twins, he was called up, made his debut on Saturday. He became the first player in Major League history to wear number 80. And he pitched well, had a good outing. Tigers won that game, the loss wasn't on him. But he became the first player ever to wear the number 80. The jersey number also became prevalent Saturday night during the college baseball Super Regionals. Facing elimination, Vanderbilt pitcher Kumar Rocker threw a 19-strikeout no-hitter of Duke. Vandy would go on to win the following day and advance to Omaha in the College World Series. Kumar Rocker's number? 80. 80 is not what you would think would be a baseball number, but it sure was on Saturday. Ryan Eads and Kumar Rocker, two guys the world probably had never heard of, at least the majority of us had never heard of on Friday. They put the number 80 on the baseball map by Saturday. That means we have some breaking news to give you. I couldn't do an actual alarm because then people would think it's real, hearing it out of context, and people would freak out. So here's what we have for you. Major League Baseball released their first all-star voting update for the American League. Position by position, we get to see who's leading and who has a chance to go to the Midsummer Classic July 9th in Cleveland. So again, voting is open from now until June 21st, at which time the top three players at each infield position group plus the top nine outfielders overall will be selected for the Midsummer Classic. Then they move on to the starters election, which will determine the starting lineups. Here we go, position by position. Gary Sanchez, the Yankees backstop, the top vote-getter at the catcher position. He's followed by the White Sox' James McCann, Minnesota's Jason Castro, Robinson Chirinos from Houston, and Boston's Christian Vasquez. So again, top three make it. So a voting ended right now, Sanchez, McCann, and Castro. Over at first base, Luke Voigt is the top vote-getter, another Yankee. He's followed by Minnesota's C.J. Crone and Chicago's Jose Abreu, Cleveland's Carlos Santana, and L.A.'s Albert Pujols missing the cut but still making the top five. At second base, here's probably the biggest surprise on the list, Tommy LaStella, the second baseman for the Angels. He is the leading vote-getter at the position. Jose Altuve of Houston and New York's D.J. LeMayhew would make the cut right now. Jonathan Scope from Minnesota, the first man out. 
Michael Chavez, who's done a wonderful job stepping in for the injured Dustin Pedroia, is fifth. At third base, Alex Bregman of Houston, the leading vote-getter. Giovanni Urshela from the Yankees. How about that? He's up to number two in the All-Star voting, former Cleveland Indian. You have Hunter Dozier out of Kansas City, Rafael Devers from Boston, and Oakland's Matt Chapman. Jorge Polanco, the Minnesota shortstop, leading vote-getter at that position. Carlos Correa follows him, then Glaber Torres from New York. Tim Anderson, maybe a little surprising, he doesn't make the cut as it stands right now. He is fourth. Xander Bogarts out of Boston is fifth. The outfielders, again, you take the top nine overall, regardless of left, center, or right. Top vote-getter is Mike Trout, George Springer, Austin Meadows, Michael Bradley, and Mookie Betts, the top five. You've got Eddie Rosario, six, followed by Aaron Judge, Joey Gallo, and Josh Reddick. First man out, Max Kepler. So those are the top ten. Again, the top nine make it. Designated hitter, because keep in mind, no matter where the game is played, the All-Star Games will have a DH. J.D. Martinez out of Boston leading the way. Hunter Pence, yes, he's still in the league. He's playing for Texas. He is second. Nelson Cruz out of Minnesota, third. Shohei Otani from L.A., fourth. And New York's John Carlos Stanton is fifth. So that's a look at the early voting for the AL All-Star team. Midsummer Classic, just a month away. Less than a month now, officially a month from yesterday. Well, I tell you what, the College World Series field starting to take shape. Auburn is on. They punched their ticket earlier today with a drubbing of North Carolina. Ole Miss and Arkansas, they just got underway about the time that we hit the air. And the Omaha field is almost set. I tell you what, the Michigan Wolverines are going to be there for the first time since 1984. Michigan is Omaha bound. They beat the top overall seed UCLA in two out of three games in Los Angeles. And again, the top overall seed nationally has not won the College World Series since 1999. That trend is going to continue. So Michigan is on, and what a magical run it's been for those guys. They make it into the tournament as one of the final four teams, them along with Florida State, now they're both on to the College World Series. They had the chance to clinch on Saturday night, and a drop fly ball, a routine fly ball play that he's probably made millions of times throughout his life, would have sent his team on to Omaha a day earlier. UCLA came back to win in extras. No harm, no foul, though. His team comes back the next night. They take care of business. And Michigan, a three-seed in the regional round, a three-seed in the Big Ten tournament. Suddenly, they are one of the last eight in the college baseball world. Michigan on to Omaha. And again, the College World Series will throw the first pitch this weekend, Saturday. Saturday is going to be a fun day, and it can't come soon enough. I like what they're doing this year, where they have a major league game preceding it. A lot of Michigan fans, I'm guessing, are going to be in the Omaha area because the Tigers are playing the Royals on Thursday. That's how they're kicking off the College World Series this year with a pro game at TD Ameritrade Park in Omaha. The Tigers are down there for a three-game series at Kansas City. Two games will be played at the K, the other in Omaha, preceding the College World Series. Think a lot of fans might just stick around and watch Michigan there. First time since 1984. Congrats to Eric Bakic and the Wolverines. Well, I tell you what, that's going to do it for us today. I appreciate you tuning in as always, and I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoy bringing it to you. I'll be back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central, here on ESPN-UP, online with our app, Get it from the Apple iStore or Google Play if you haven't already. Just look up ESPN Space UP. You can hear live broadcast, archive broadcast. You can use it to listen to Game 5 of the NBA Finals this evening. 9 o'clock tip. Will Kevin Durant's return be able to lead the Warriors back into the series? Or will Kawhi and the Raptors close it out and clinch their first title? Find out tonight. We'll break it down for you tomorrow. I'll be right back here for Eastern 3 Central. Signing off from the ESPN-UP WZAM Ishpeming Marquette Studios. My name's Tanner Hoops. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.